right, so here's the deal. We're doing something complex. Do we ever do something that's not complex in this room? Is it always complicated? But uh, this is particularly complex, but I, but I hope it's going to be useful and helpful to you guys. So if you weren't here last week, you might want to go listen to the tape from last week. By the way, this class is always recorded. It's online. And any of the resources that we, that we hand out, in case you're listening on the recording, um, we'll, always ha- we'll, we'll put them on the website, um, chsroanoke.com. There's like a Sunday school tab or Sunday school link. And so I do have a handout you guys will get in about 10 minutes, but I don't want to give it to you yet. Um, so when we see it, um, if you're listening and you want to grab it, go online and you can get it there. But what we're doing here is we're just taking a few weeks to just try to get our, get our heads around kind of our current cultural condition by going back about 700 years, more or less. Um, there's a lot of things that we could lament about any culture at any time, and not just in the last 700 years. But it does seem that at our particular moment, there is a particular idea that I would suggest to you really has had and will yet have more devastating consequences. This game is not over yet. Um, and na- really, namely, if I were to summarize the, the, what, what it is we're talking about, it is really the, the idea that truth is in the eye of the beholder, right? That there really is no such thing as, a, as actual truth, um, but that everything is subjective. The entire universe is subjective. Um, it's not, it's not. Reality exists, and reality can be described with accurate language. That's actually possible to do, although it is admittedly extremely difficult. Um, but millions and millions of people, not just in the United States, but really throughout the world, and, and for our interests in the West, don't think that reality exists or can be described accurately. Rather, that everything is ultimately subjective. Everything is self-determined. And that has consequences, really massive consequences. Last week, I made the claim that this has not suddenly dropped upon us. It's not merely the result of something that happened five years ago or ten years ago or, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, But that it's been slowly building since at least the 1300s, um, really thanks to a philosophy espoused by a guy named William of Ockham. He was an English, he was, he was a Christian, a friar or a monk or something. I don't even know what he said. He was something. Um, and I want to kind of trace with you the development of thought from Ockham to the present day. So this is a bit of a history of philosophy class. Um, but before I do, I want to try to give you a little bit of review of what we talked about last week, because these are not simple, easily accessible ideas. These, these take a little bit of a while to kind of get our heads around. Um, and um, we'll, do, we'll kind of do a little bit of review, and I want to put it in its own historical context, okay? Um, and then, at the end, if we have a picture, I'm going to show you a picture. So if I forget, Scott, remind me, wave at me or something later on. And it won't have anything to do with anything, but it makes me really happy, and so I'm going to share it with you. So there's that. Okay. Who has heard of Thomas Aquinas? You guys know... What do you know about Thomas Aquinas? Do you know anything? Good guy, bad guy? You got any, any sense of who he is? Okay, Archbishop of Canterbury. I don't believe that to be true, but it's a good guess. He precedes Canterbury by a good bit. Aquinas. What do you know about Aquinas? Anything? Other? We've heard of him, but do we know anything about him? Early church. Early church mm, well, no, the church fathers, we, we think of the church fathers as really like maybe 100 A.D. to about 300 A.D., and Aquinas is more like in the 1200s. So if you know that we're, we're, we're going, he's essentially a contemporary or a slight predecessor of, of our boy Occam. And in some sense, he is Occam's opponent. So um, Augustine was a proponent of, uh, 
a, philosoph um, a school of thought known as scholasticism. And he was brilliant. He was a Dominican friar. He's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Like a, you, you probably think things and know things because Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas knew them and wrote them down, even if we can't ever trace it back to him. But one of the core teachings of scholasticism was this principle that everything exists and has a God-given essential nature, it's essential to the things, what we kind of talked about last week, um, that, that, that is, it, it always will be, and it exists independent of human thought. The things are not merely thought about, but they are. And he believed in scholasticism. He believed that God made the world and he, he, he imbued it in its fundamental nature with meaning. That they are what they are and they have significance, not because God labeled them as significant, but because he made them essentially to be intrinsically what he wished that they would be. Okay? This, note, this idea is called metaphysical realism. And you don't need to know that. But you do know it, so bonus, okay? So it's, it's real, metaphysically, things actually exist. The world and everything in it is part of a harmonious whole ordered by God and filled with meaning and that all things, everything, is some, some sense a sign that points to God because he made it to be so. Didn't merely decree it so, but made it to be so. The essence of a thing is built into its very existence and it is what it is and always will be. But of course... We may or may not perceive it accurately. Oh, we get stuff wrong all the time. I get things wrong all the time. I'll look at something and I'll think it's this. And then I realize, oh, I'm, the light was funny and it wasn't what I thought it was. I, or, or I just have my own framework, my own experience, my own understanding that I use to interpret things. And there's a difference between what is and what I think things are. But in fact and in truth, Psalm 19 is real. The heavens do declare the glory of God. And the skies do proclaim the work of his hands, right? Not only is it that things are what they are. But hints of it come through to us. Such, and this is all scholasticism. This is all Aquinas. Okay? He would affirm all of this. He, he wouldn't just affirm it. He'd say, yeah, that's what I just said. Okay? That when you go outside, if you're in the desert, I remember, I remember the first time it ever happened to me. I was a little boy. I was on a Boy Scout trip in the Mojave Desert of California. And I got out of the car and I looked up in the sky and I had no idea. Right? I had never seen 25 billion stars all at the same time. I'd always seen 150 stars, but I'd never seen 100,000 stars. And it was, I mean, it was, it was I, I mean, I was distinctly, it had to be, I was, I don't know, eight or something, or 10, I don't know how old I was. It was 40 years ago, and I was, <laughs> I was startled. I was pushed back. And it was obvious to me, not just that the universe was massive, but that it meant something. There was grandeur. And there was beauty and there was significance and it pointed to something outside of myself, right? And it may not be the stars for you. Maybe it's something else, something at a national park. But, but there are times when we'll see something so startlingly magnificent that we're like, oh, there must be a God. Something must be real. It's not just what it is, but it's, it, has, it has meaning, right? So, uh, not Augustine. Who am I talking about? Aquinas would say the God, the infinite God, is always revealing himself through finite nature, okay? Now, Occam shows up into this setting and he says, ah, that doesn't make any sense. An infinite God can't be constrained by a finite nature. He must, be, he must be able to speak out of that, and if he changes his mind about what something is, then he can do it. That that chair is not essentially cherish, chair, well, that's a weird thing, but cherish is a word, it's not essentially a seat, but God could decree it to be something else. Not only that, but that God could Say that this thing is evil and then change his mind and say this thing is good. 
And Occam was trying to free up God and trying to make sure that we don't put God in some kind of a box. And he denied that objects have intrinsic meaning or intrinsic identity, that they only have the meaning that is assigned to them. And this is where our debate really ended last week, okay? That we were, as we were kind of, you guys did a mag, I was so, I, was, I enjoyed that so much, and you guys did a fantastic job of really kind of like working out, well, what about this? What are the implications of this? As we came up with team yes and team no, and where, where would we be? And we ended it tr with me trying to impress upon you the idea that if things have an intrinsic meaning or intrinsic purpose or an intrinsic identity, if it's essential to the thing, then labeling and relabeling would be meaningless. It won't work. But if things don't have an essential internal intrinsic value or meaning, then you can write any label you want on them and we can change things all, all day long. And what we've observed is that by and large, Occam won the debate. And that Occam, though he was wrong, his ideas have prevailed. And that we fundamentally, right, have this anticipation, this assumption about the world that, that you simply label. Meanings are labels. They're arbitrary. They're external. They're applied. They're assigned rather than essential to the nature. And that all happened in the 1300s. Okay? So far, so good? Now we're going to build on that. So let me pause and give you a chance to ask a question or push back or does that sound different from what we said last week? Or did you feel you got cut off in the debate? Um, anything you want to push on with that? Oh, never mind. I got something else that reminds me of, but I'll give you guys a chance to go first. So far, so good. Or is it just too, is it too obtuse? Too, okay, Lily. I'm curious, when Occam made his argument, how much of it, of God's ability to call something whatever he wants, because he's God, that he ascribed to man, is when Tom and I were talking about this, we felt like the ultimate flaw in realistically both those sides is that God can call something what he wants because he's God if he chooses to do so, but man cannot. Okay. And so I feel like there's a complication there. Yes. Okay. So I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up. So here's so what Lily is saying. Well, hang on. Are we? Are we? If, if if could it be the case that God can label something as he wants to, but we may not. God is God, and we can label it whatever he wants to do. But it would be a gross error to therefore ascribe to us the same power that we ascribe to God. Okay, does that, does that make sense? Okay, that is Occam's point. Occam was not arguing that, that Rachel Thompson should be able to label things as she wants, but that God alone can do it. Okay, so he was absolutely arguing, he was defending God's, he thought he was defending God's sovereignty. Okay, but here's what you need to get. If, if and this is, this, this is, I'm so glad you asked this, Lily. Um, as soon as you allow, or as soon as you, God doesn't need your permission for to do anything. As soon as the worldview that you adopt, as soon as the belief system that you accept has God, Aaron, good to see you, brother. As soon as that has God creating labels, then it necessarily means that it's a label game. That it's, there is no essential reality. It is what it is because God labeled. And if you do that, if, if God is the one doing, even if God is the one doing the labeling, you're still in a label system. And once you've got that, it's going to be 30 seconds till we start printing stuff off Avery labels and doing it all by ourselves. It just is the way it works. And so what Aquinas would argue and what I am arguing is that even if we're limiting the labeling capacity to God, you're getting it wrong because you're saying that, that it's a label system, that God, that 
that things don't have an essential nature, they're merely ascribed. And there is a, it is necessarily the case that once you're in that kind of a framework, it's only a matter of time until everybody does the labor. Okay? So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's, that's really, that it is, Occam was arguing for God's freedom, not ours. But the thing just had to devolve necessarily. Yeah, Brad? The question, uh, why do you think God enlisted Adam to name the creation, the animals? Okay, great. What, what role was, what was that trying to show? Beautiful, man. That's great. Okay, so, so Brad's question, I'm saying you don't, we, it's not a label game. He said, well, didn't, didn't Adam get to call those things with the long necks a giraffe? Right, and, that, and that's, he did. So what was he doing there? The short answer to what he was doing there, he's giving Adam, it's really an authority picture, that Adam's naming of things, is grant, he's giving to Adam leadership, rulership over creation, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the land, everything crawls along it. And he gives them, the, in the same way that you got to name your children, because you're their dad, Adam is given the authority to name things. And it is true that things do have labels, Right? It is true that things have, we're, it's convenient to name something. And if you create a company, you're allowed to call it whatever you want. If you have a baby, you're allowed to name, it, name her, him, it, whatever you want. Right? But that thing still has an essential nature that you haven't given. Right? So all that's going on there is not, he's not conveying to Adam the ability to create essence, but simply to, to call things because he's the king of creation. Is that helpful? Okay, Jennifer. I had the same thought, and I had Genesis up because I was going to ask you. And it's interesting, he says um, that God, let's see, he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So it was sort of like, it's this new creation, let's see what I got here. So I don't know. But so he gave permission, and it sort of, I don't know if it was a test, but it was sort of a trial. Yes. Well, and, and it's an expression of, like, it's like Adam's first job. Like, okay, you're in charge. What do you want to call these things? It's like, I don't know. You know, hippopotamus. So, and, and, and off we go. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, the thing that I just remembered that it's not really, it's not about this thing, but I, but I don't want to forget to say it. Somebody pointed out to me last week um, that in my, as we talk about transgenderism as the final, not final, but the most recent expression of kind of an absurd level of changing the essence of a thing. Um, it seemed to them that I was uniquely picking on women. It, my, my example was about, about 15-year-old girls that are, that are transgendering. And then I said something else that I forget. And I was like two for two on describing it as being a female thing. And in no way, shape, or form do I mean that to be a unique thing. Like, it's, I did not mean to be um, picking on the girls on this. And in fact, I would suggest that the, 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 the blooming of 15-year-old girls who are going through transgender-ism is... Um, uh, how do I even say this? They're, they're being victimized by that. These are girls that are struggling. They're hurting, right? In the same way that girls might be struggling with cutting or eating disorders and there's issues, there's reasons. Life is hard. And we all employ strategies. As broken people in a broken world, we're employing strategies to get through the day. Some of those strategies get foisted upon people and even championed in ways that are really, really harmful. So I, forgive me if, I, if, I, if it seemed like I was picking on the girls. I, I really don't mean to do that at all. Um, if anything, I'm picking on Occam who is male, okay? So, yeah, bro. Uh, even if there are these, like, Platonist universals or, you know, essential natures, like, that's another thing to say we can know them. And I imagine, are you going to get to that? Because it's... It's all good. Everything's great. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's great. So, I, if I answer... Well, is there more that you wanted to say? No, no, no. I mean... 
That's good. Okay. So, so if we, even if we grant that things have an essential nature and are real, it does not follow that I'm omniscient and know all things. Right? I am... I can be deceived. I've got my own biases. There's all sorts of places that where I can, like, I can think something is whatever it is, but it's, truth exists, but it doesn't exist in my pocket, right? I don't know all things. My job, my, my goal in life is to try to discover, and as I discover things and I theorize about things or, think, or I'm taught something and I think it's true, I might be right. Sometimes I'm right. There are some things that I've really done a lot of study on. I'm like, it's going to take an awful lot to convince me that I'm wrong about this because I've done the work and I'm confident in this, right? And in those things um, where God is particular, where God has spoken, I think that we can be dogmatic in the sense of, yeah, it's clear we've done the work, we know what this is, and we're not going to like just pretend it's all imaginary. But there's a whole lot more stuff that I'm like, I don't know. How should I know? Or I haven't done the work, or I've heard competing ideas, and I'm not sure which one is true. So even as we assert that things are essential, we don't assert our own omnipotence, our own, um, or really, I should, our, our own omniscience. I don't know. I might be wrong, and I am wrong. I just don't know which things I'm wrong about. But let's root them out and find out what the truth is. Okay? So here's what we're going to do. And this is where we can pass. Oh, no, no, no. Don't. Mm. Hold on to this for a moment more. Um, Occam was a long time ago. And a lot of stuff has happened since. And so here's the game. Let's try to brainstorm what has happened in the world, major world events in the last several centuries, last 700 years, to further and deepen this idea of nominalism. And this is what Occam's philosophies come to be known as. Nominalism, things are what they are because you name them such. Nominalism is to, to name. Today, it's self-evident to millions and millions and millions of people the truth is whatever you say it is, that you ascribe it. We didn't get there overnight. What has happened, in some sense, to democratize truth? It used to be the truth existed and it was revealed and it was accepted. Now, it's not even the truth is discovered, but the truth is um, decided, determined. What happened between here and there? that brought us to that. And you can pick any point. You can go to the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, 1800s, 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 and let's throw see if you guys can't come up. There's, depending on how you count it, there's probably like five to eight major things that have all like deepened this divide. And understanding how they've hacked it, how they have impacted us kind of gives us a little bit, of, a little bit greater capacity to be um, kind of inert against its kind of destructive impact on our thinking. So what has happened in the last several centuries? that might democratize truth in our minds. And by the way, we like a lot of these things. A lot of these things, we're like, I love that that happened, but it had secondary effects. Brad? Uh, so one could be just the shift in political systems from a sovereign who was thought to have taken all of his authority from God directly yep. to a democratic political system. Yeah, even the statement of the democratization of truth kind of suggests the democracy because we, again, we don't like sovereign kings telling us what the rules are. We're going to figure that as long as 51% of us can figure that out, then that is the answer. So very good. Excellent. The, the, the rise of those systems politically is, has shaped the way we think. Yeah, Bill? Maybe trivial, but just the discovery of the new world. Yes. And what about that? Why would the new world in particular? All the truths, whether the world is flat or whatever the truths were, were certainly exploded. Okay, okay, sure. So there's all kinds of revolutions of things that we've been told, when we're told something is true, and then it turns out to not be true, well, we become very mistrustful 
of the authority, right? And, and kind of rightly so. Eric, are you trying to say something? Uh, the printing press. Okay. So, and what does the printing press do? This is a, this is a massive technological event in the history of the world. Why? Why does that? Why is that relevant? Because it allows for large mass scale reproduction of information, and it doesn't cost a million dollars to make one book. Yes. More people can have access to more information cheaper. Yes. Very good. Right. So you get a printing press. You get Gutenberg doing his thing, and now new ideas can be disseminated. And it's and it's a little bit like you. you you, we haven't lived through something quite like the printing press, but we've lived through things like um, the internet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, the, uh, what I was trying to think of was like the blogging or podcast, where you used to have a controlled media. Like, there's three people that are allowed to publish books, and there's three other people that are allowed to tell you what the news is. Well, now any Yahoo with a microphone can like can get their idea out there, and so you just have this massive influx of of ideas and absolute inability to filter them out. And so we no longer believe in a revealed reality, but rather a, de a self-determined reality, right? It's massive. So what, that what's happening for us now, the printing press was the you know, precursor to that in the 1500s. So excellent, good. Lots of different ideas. Keep going. You guys are doing great. Um, if I pronounce it right, Machiavellianism? Okay, so yeah, Mach the, the whole Machiavellian idea. What, what about this? Well, it, it brings up another as truth or reality undermining what God has made. Right. And so any anytime there's anytime you see these massive upheavals that really took place throughout Europe for lots of different reasons and not all politically driven, you, you have this kind of rebelling against authority. You have harsh authority, you have rebelling against authority, and a whole in a whole lot of ways we're like, I don't like your truth, and so I'm gonna create my own, right? In lots of different ways. And Europe was a hotbed of this for some very, very understandable reasons. So, excellent. Okay, you guys are doing great. You guys are great historians. Robin? Martin Luther. Okay. Um, and how everybody had accepted everything from the Catholic Church is true. And he... It's huge, you guys. So, in case you couldn't hear Robin, she, she said Martin Luther. We could say all things about the, the Reformation are just absolutely enormous. Okay? And we're Protestants by and large in this room, and so we like the Reformation. The Reformation is a good thing, but you cannot underestimate the, the impact that that had on, on world thought. We went from one revealed answer, this is what God has said, to when the church split, it didn't split into two, it split into 200,000, right? You hit that second, it's just like, and off we, off we go. And so the crazy thing is, so here's one thing that was, it's just so interesting, um, Luther himself was, he was excommunicated because of his refusal to recant his belief that scripture alone is where the answers lie. Uh, the great, one of the great rallying cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura. It is God's word alone as distinct from the authoritative interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church. This is the source of truth. And so Luther was trying to say, no, 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 what you say isn't the answer. What God's word says is the answer. He's trying to move us back into a kind of a pre-Occam framework where there's like, there's one answer and it's God's word, not God's word filtered through the whims of men. But like the very next thing that happens is 500 people step and say, yeah, 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 the Bible is the right answer, but let me tell you what it means. <laughs> and now you've got infinite interpret, and we're right back to where we started, but only dramatically more so, right? The Reformation is a massive huge thing. The, re the reformers, they essentially believed that we had the ability to look at the scriptures and see what it meant. And lots and lots of people 
have looked at the scriptures and come up with vastly divergent understandings of what it meant. And so again, we've got infinite competing ideas. Okay, yep. I don't know when it started, but science, you know, when, a lot of times we are told this is science, and so it's true. Right, okay, so, and so we, I would probably say, maybe I would say the enlightenment might be what you're thinking of, really. So the, the, uh, this, the, this whole massive kind of uh, attempt to create a philosophical framework, right, that makes sense of the natural world. When we start off, what was, science was initially called natural philosophy, and then it kind of turns into, you know, the scientific revolution. Um, it, was, it was gargantuan, absolutely huge. Scientific revolution, moving into it, moving into the enlightenment, and now we've got people that are determining things and challenging previous things that they've been told. And again, we're grateful. We have vaccines because of the scientific revolution. We have, you know, anesthetics. We're grateful for all sorts of things that are, that are learned. But it is, again, democratized truth in, in all, lots, lots of interesting ways. Most of these things, not all of them, most of these things were really, really good, but they came with unintended consequences. Okay, one or two more? Yeah. I would say, I mean, along the lines of the Reformation, but prior, like Wycliffe, making the Bible accessible, like also the church control thing and making it in a language that's accessible. Because English was like a peasant language, and it became, I mean, it was like, that was a church control thing where they didn't want the peasants to have the word of God in that language. So that in itself in the Christian realm is huge in that not just truth being revealed and the Reformation and the stance there, but like truth being now accessible to like a peasant, like Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and so really what you're, what you're intersecting there is the, the Protestant Reformation and the printing press. And those two things came together in a profoundly explosive way. And whether you, whether you go back to Wycliffe, who is, we call, Wycliffe is known as the morning star of the Reformation. He was a reformer before the Reformation was cool. He's like pre-reformer. And he's the Bible translator before that even happened. And then once you get into the actual Reformation, it's really William Tyndale. And, and, and you're almost quoting Tyndale. He has this famous fight with a, one of the, I don't know, a bishop or you know, some Roman you know, church authority. Um, and, the, and this guy says, we, we would be better off without the word of God than without the laws of the Pope. He's advocating for man-made authority over, over biblical revelation, which really angered Tyndale. And Tyndale says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life, I will make the boy who drives the plow no more of scripture than you do. And so begins his great work to translate the New Testament into English and the Old Testament into English. And it is the, I mean, it is the great work. And then he was strangled to death and burned. They just hated him so much. They, they, as well, they, they, he was burned to the stake. But right before they lit the fires, they choked him to death with a chain, which was an act of mercy, and then lit him on fire. They just hated him. But what he did was exactly, we're going we're gonna to make this available to the commoners because you, dis, you despise God's revelation, which Tyndale is one of my absolute heroes. I love, love, love Tyndale. But you're right that this contributed to this, this, this furtherance of this idea. Lots of the things that lead us to this are really good things. Okay, one or two more, and then we'll, and then we'll okay, in fact, you guys can start passing these out if you don't mind. So I'm going to give you a particular answer cue, but you've pretty much played bingo. You've checked them all off. So Michael and then Patrick, and then, we're, and then we'll keep going. So, uh, The creation of the country itself, our country. Okay, so this country is born of that, right? We don't like kings. We don't like kings at all. And so we, again, they talk about the democ if democracy is a thing, then all the, and, and we didn't invent this idea, right? All these great ideas that rise. We're, 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 we're picking up Adam Smith's capitalism. We're picking up... 
you know, Thomas Hobbes' understanding of like the misery of life if it's not under a governmental structure. I mean, all kinds of ideas are all converging as we pull the United States out of nowhere. Okay, Patrick. About the idea of uh, evolution versus creativity. Yeah, so that, that's really a continuation of the scientific revolution, right? So later on, uh, as we go deeper in through the Enlightenment, um, we get into all that as well. So take, take a look at the sheet here, and I'll give you a couple of more things. We'll, we'll walk through it in order together. And this, by the way, I've got to tell you, there's a couple of places, if this by any chance is interesting to you, the great work on what we're, just, what we're talking is a book by Richard Weaver called Ideas Have Consequences. It's really boring, though, okay? And I don't recommend it. But it's, it's, it's the great work on this. Ideas Have Consequences. He really traces all this thing through, and you'll never get through it. A far more accessible book is The Benedict Option by... It's, and that's what this document is from. Rod Dreyer, I think is how you say his name. Um, the Benedict Option. Um, he's got one chapter in his book that we're, I'm completely plagiarizing in this conversation. Okay? So if you, if, you, if you want to pick it up, The Benedict Option, is, I think when I read it, I was like, this, is, this explains so much to me. And so this is, um, I think verbatim, like a couple of pages from his book is what your handout is here. Okay? So, starts off in the 1300s with the defeat of metaphysical, real, uh, metaphysical realism by nominalism. That's what we talked about. This was a massive thing. And all sorts of non-philosophical things like the bubonic plague sweep through Europe and changes everything. It's a little bit like what's happening in the United States right now, right? When you have a massive disease and it's changing everything, we're all looking forward to things going back to normal. And do you all know that will never happen? Right? That will never happen. The movie theaters may open again, and you may not be wearing a mask in 12 months, but there is no normal, right? The world has been changed, and that has been happening for a long, long time. So the bubonic plague blows through Europe, and um, stuff's going to be different now. People are going to change the economics change. You kill a ton of, here's what happens you kill a billion people, and you don't have enough workers. And so the workers that are left, you got to pay them more to get them to work because you have a massive change in your labor, labor markets. And I mean, the, 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 the world is being influenced not just by some egghead in a tower, but by chaotic events that you can't shape or change in the world. And if we trace these things through, you can actually, you'll never see it looking forward, but you can look back and be like, how did we get here? And if you're wise, you can see all these things kind of playing out. Yeah, bro. Oh, this is, uh, this uh, virus is nothing Oh, not even close. That wiped out a third of the population of Europe. Some cities said uh, that wiped out half. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So you're right. I'm not. I'm not creating it. There is. There is no numerical equivalence between COVID and the and the plague. Right. I mean, just gargantuan. You're, you're, you're talking about that. You, when you said third, I thought that was even low. I've heard it's generally about half, but between a third and a half the population of Europe. Where overall about a third, some places I think. I think Florence wiped out half. Yeah, just, I mean, massive, massive. So we're not looking at anything like that, but we're changed by, le by lesser things as well, okay? 1400s, the Renaissance comes, and it's all about human potential, all these things that we can be and do, and this, the vision of the world shifts from God as the center of all things to man as the center of all things. And if God is no longer the center of all things, then God's thoughts about what things are is not nearly as pertinent as what my thoughts about things are. And you're seeing the center starts to drift out, right? This is early. This is 1400s. Then you come up into the 1500s. And the Reformation, as we talked about, it absolutely blows up 
everything. And again, there's a lot of good stuff that came out of the Reformation, but everything has intended consequences, like everything does. And as the Reformation shows up, people begin to think very differently. 1600s, you start to get into the, the scientific revolution, more war, more raging ideas, and the the, uh, if I say, is this even meaningful to you guys? If I say the medieval model of the universe, has anybody ever heard of that? Anybody know what, the, what, that, what that even means, the medieval model of the universe? If not, it may not even be worth getting into. But there, it's, it, the, basically the scholastic understanding is that um, everything, how do I even say this? Everything is a sacrament. Everything. The whole world is sacramental. Everything that God has made is imbued not just with meaning but with spiritual meaning. And today, we would be hard-pressed to find people. Some people would think that the sacraments are sacramental. Some people don't think that's even sacramental. But we certainly don't think that this podium is sacramental, right? So in the medieval universe, everything had spiritual meaning. And by around, you know, kind of post-Reformation era, as the scientific revolution comes up, that's pretty laughable to most people. Things are just material. Things are just made out of molecules, and let's not make this more than it is. And that's a, that begins to be a massive change in the assumption. The Enlightenment shows up in the 1700s. Reason is our favorite thing, and I love reason. I, there's much that comes out of the Enlightenment that I love. And then the one thing you guys didn't mention, look at the 1800s. What did you guys not? You guys, did, you guys pretty much got everything up till now. Industrial Revolution. Okay, what, so let's think about this one. What, what does the Industrial Revolution do for us? How does that, how does that change the way we think? Takes the uniqueness out of things and makes everything sort of mass-produced the same. Okay, great. So takes the uniqueness out of things and makes everything's mass-produced and the same. So, excellent. What does it do? Cities. Cities, right. So now we're going to move into these. We create industrial centers away from what, Kelly? Farms. From farm, right. So the Industrial Revolution radically changes us away from an agrarian culture. This is true. Yep. It also funded our ability to have... Time to have leisure, to have pursuits outside of work. Yes, absolutely. So because we, we can do things much more efficiently, we not only do we blow up this whole way of life, um, but we create in some ways some really, really nice advantages. There's things we like the fact that if you want to get a tomato, it's like a buck at the grocery store. You don't have to sow the ground and do all this work. A lot of things get dramatically easier. T take a look at what we say here. Well, was one, one, one more thing about the Industrial Revolution. Okay, take a look. The success of the Industrial Revolution pulverized the agrarian way of life, right? We're out of the farms. It uproots the masses from rural areas and brings them into cities. And relationships among people came to be defined by money. You guys, you, all your life, you've thought about money as the kind of primary driver. And of course you do. Of course you do. But it's not always been that way, right? People have always loved money. Paul talked, I mean, like 1,700 years before this, Paul's talking about the love of money being the root of evil, right? All kinds of evil. But something changed where we were just doing this with the fellows this weekend where, like, at an economic level, the way we view the world is radically shaped and changed and filtered um, by economics. Relationships among people came to be defined by money. The romantic movement rebelled against this alienation in the name of individualism and passion. Atheism and Marxist influenced progressive social reform spread among the cultural elites. And the world now, at each stage, the fractures are growing and getting deeper and wider of how we even think about the very nature of reality. And then finally, 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 what happens in the 1900s? Two world wars. Okay. 
massive. You, people were super, do you know that people were incredibly optimistic at the dawn of the 20th century? The 1900s were a splendid time. Do you know this? I mean, yeah, the, the roaring 20s. Things were going incredibly well. We're so smart. We're discovering all these things. All the stuff coming out of this was like exceptional, fantastic, wonderful, until what? Okay, and a couple things, right? You get World War I. What else happened right around the same time? Oh. The Depression. The, okay, the Depression is going to come in a minute, but what's first? Yeah, the Spanish flu, right? So you get the Spanish flu, you get World War I, you got people dying in, you know, like trenches, and like everybody's optimism just goes, just crashes, and the world becomes a brutal place. It's a chaotic world. There's no revealed truth. There's no divine order. You know why there's no divine order? Because there's no order. Everything's a chaotic, hellish nightmare, and we don't know what to do anymore. Then the Depression hits the United States. I mean, it is like globally, worldwide, everybody's, it's like, it's like 2020, but worse. <laughs> I mean, really. And so what on earth are we going to do? We have another world war. Things get better in the United States, right? But they get better because we figure out a way to make it work. And then the final thing that we tend to think, like, generally speaking, at least I used to only look back far enough to our final, what's our final item on our list? Sexual, Sexual. revolution. Sexual revolution. And that's where I used to think it was. Like, life was good until the 60s. And then everything started to go off the rails, which is so foolish, right? It's so incredibly, like, you know, narrow, such a narrow little view. But, the, but it is true that the sexual revolution further deepened in a very profound way our absolute autonomy. You separate babies from pleasure, and, I mean, I'll take pleasure over babies any day, right? And, and we're off to the races, and the world just kind of spins into increasing madness. But not, it didn't start in 1960. For a very, very long time, we've been thinking, I bet I can determine truth. I bet there isn't a truth. I bet things are simply what I call them to be. All right, Robin. I think we, we haven't mentioned is I think that our society is almost rabid about their rights and their freedoms to, to the extent of it, I don't care how it hurts someone else. And I think that is, has grown exponentially as well. Yes. So Robin is saying that our society is so wrapped around the idea that I get to do whatever I want. It's like I'm, I am the final determiner. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, right? To quote a famous poem. But um, although you said like uh, um, even to the point of hurting others, I, I would suggest that generally speaking, our rule is you can do whatever you want so long as it doesn't hurt others. But we're not really smart about recognizing that we hurt others all the time, right? We like to pretend that if I just live my own individual life, that I'm not hurting anybody and I can do whatever I want. And it's not true. It's, it's simply not true. If one part of the body hurts, the whole part, the whole body hurts. And I could, if, if I were to say, you know what, I just, I want to do whatever I want to do, my life is connected to like hundreds of people. Whether it's because I'm giving, I'm doing something and I give somebody else permission by my example, whether because there's a direct consequence of my children that I'm obligated to care for or now hurt, or Kelly is, is hurt, or this church suffers, whatever, whatever it is, my life is connected to people. And so the myth that I can do whatever I want and it's not gonna, if, it, if there's a victimless crime, there's, there are no victimless crimes. Our lives impact others. Never mind, even if, even if somehow I was able to do something and it wouldn't harm anybody, I was not put on the earth to not harm people. I was put on the earth to bless people. And even if it simply gets me down to neutral, I'm not allowed to be neutral, right? I'm blessed to be a blessing. I've been given much so that I might give much. 
And if I just decide I'm giving much so I can keep it, I don't get to do that. Even my own wealth is not my own. And so all those things that really run up against the limit of God's command that we would love him and that we would love our neighbors. And if we're failing to do those things, the implications can be great for lots and lots of people. Okay, so we're, we're basically out of time. So here's what we're going to do. This you've got, you got your brief little history lesson, which you didn't ask for, but you received nonetheless. <laughs> Next week, we're going to say, okay, so what? If we, if we have a richer understanding of how did we get here to this point where some really insanely strange ideas are propagated, and we're raising kids in this environment, we're going to work in this environment, we're trying to make good decisions ourselves in this environment, what do we do? And we'll talk a little bit about that next week. Okay, but now I have a gift. It's really a gift for me, but I'm going to share it with you. Okay, look at this picture. It's your baby. Isn't that amazing? That's my son, Max. Oh, my God. He's the kid in the upper right. <laughs> Isn't that a fantastic picture? He just sent me that. He's, uh, Max is a freshman at the University of Hawaii. Um, which is sometimes amazing because it's such an incredibly beautiful place, but it's actually been really disappointing because there's so many restrictions and everything's weird and terrible. But he just sent, he sent us this picture uh, a couple days ago, and I've looked at it about 100 times, and I'm simply showing it to you because it makes me happy, and I want to show him off. So, <laughs> isn't that incredible? That kid, you guys, when he was two years old, <laughs> he, uh, he got super angry because he couldn't tie his shoes, right? And he would like, he'd take his shoe and his hands and he'd just kind of go, eh, and it wouldn't tie a knot because no two-year-old in the history of the world has known how to do that. And he could, all he could see was that we were doing something and then it would be a thing and it didn't work. And so, Max, let me show you. No! You know, he just wants to do it. Eventually he learned how to tie his shoes, but that kid, his whole life, Max has been like, he is the most determined human being that I have ever met. When he was about seven or eight, we were at a park, and uh, I gave him some uh, mission, like, okay, go across the monkey bars, jump to the slide without touching the ground, try to get under that pole without, you know, it's one of those, like, everything's lava, you can't touch the ground, and do this, and he tried it, and he failed, so he tried it again, and he failed, and he tried it again, and he failed, and he tried it again, and he failed, and he tried, it's like, oh, gosh, like, on the one hand, I'm, like, really proud, like, this kid is, like, a baller, and then, eventually, after, like, the 25th attempt, I'm, like, Something's wrong, you know, like, what is driving you? And he, unlike the 35th attempt, he completed the task, and he had drawn, like, every caloric unit of energy out of, like, the marrow of his bones and was exhausted, and he did it. And he's never not been like that. And this is, I was like, when he was little, like, you were either going to end up, like, on the beaches of Iwo Jima, saving the world, or in prison. And, and uh, so far, he, we're hopeful for the, but isn't that, I just think it's so beautiful. I love Max Anderson. That is all. Thanks. We'll talk to you next week.